uh, we've been taking a journey through the biblical narrative, okay? Taking a journey through the biblical narrative. We started in the uh, beginning of the Hebrew scriptures last year, and we've managed to work our way all the way up to about the middle of the Hebrew scriptures. And um, we're still pushing on. So we found ourselves in our journey in a spot of the scriptures uh, of the Hebrew writings uh, that are called the books of poetry and wisdom. And they are in the way that our Christian Bibles are assembled, or our Old Testament, or um, Old Covenant as we would call it. Um, they are arranged in our composition right in the middle of this, this collection. And there are five books of poetry and wisdom. We've talked about several of them already. I'll put them on the screen for you to remind you there's Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. We've already covered several of these, and we are not going to spend time on all of uh, any more than them, but we're going to cover one that we've not tackled yet today, and that is going to be the book of Job. Job is our conversation for today and um, for next week. It takes us two weeks to cover Job. Now, uh, before I get started, Job is a very unique book of all the books of poetry and wisdom there. It's very unique. Style is unique. In fact, I, I hesitate to mention this, but I want to say this for those of us who, who nerd out about it. There are different people of different theological traditions that debate whether Job was a real literal person that lived and experienced these things or whether this is a book of wisdom that created a story or a narration that sets the stage for a philosophical conversation carried on through Job. And the majority opinion of scholars through the centuries, the Hebrew scholars and others, is that Job was a real person, literal person. I could make that case at length today. There's a minority view amongst scholars and theologians that it's, it's symbolic and it's the stage of wisdom literature to teach something. I'm not going to, there's a good case for that to be made too. I'm not going to answer that question today because that's not what I'm here to do. Uh, I've learned when it comes to these things, uh, my opinion only matters if, it, if you agree with it anyhow. So Not you, but you know, people in general. So anyhow, um, most importantly, I wanted to um, uh, acknowledge that so that for those of you who would get into that space, you could agree to set that issue aside. Set the issue of Job's origin and background and when and where and how. Just set all of that aside. Because either scenario, what is the purpose of the book of Job? And the application of Job is the same in either context. It's the same either way. And so I want us to look at what it's teaching us and, and put the other questions on the side so we can tackle, because the book of Job tackles an issue. The book of Job is often used to address the issue of suffering in the world. And that's a big topic. And people really wrestle down their, their view, especially their theological views of suffering in the world. They believe, they believe in a God who is omnipresent and omniscient and omnibenevolent and omnipotent, but also try to reconcile suffering in the world around us and how do you put those things together. And there are some who, you know, we have very cookie-cutter storybook answers because we just want to make it clean and just because, because okay? And that's, that's all you can do sometimes. And there are others who are just as... Uh, driven to say there is no God. And I, sometimes the skeptics against God do in their arguments here what, what people often do. You know, they'll say, there is no God and he's a jerk. You know, which is it? I don't know. Kind of like what we do with, with things we don't agree with or people or issues or politics we don't agree with. You know, you're both, uh, you know, you're a both a, a malevolently evil mastermind and you're an incompetent moron at the same time. You know, I don't know which one is true. Uh, so God doesn't exist and he's stupid. Uh, he's, he's, a, uh, he's a mean. But um, the other argument is, no, there is a God and he's good. But then how does you reconcile God's good with suffering in the world? How do you figure that out? 
And so I don't have a satisfactory answer for you today. I know that this is not a trip up to my own faith journey. There are other issues in the Christian story there are other Christian theological issues that do trip me up a little bit. If I'm being honest, they can mess with my head. This is not one of them. I'm okay with this question, with my framework. Also because I've realized that people who would use suffering to discredit the existence of God don't have a better answer. And here's something we should all remember. It's always easy to poke holes in another theory. It's easy to poke holes in a belief system. It's to poke holes in a business model or a worldview, a political view. It's easy to poke holes in anybody else's something it's a lot harder to create a better framework, right? It's always harder to create a better framework. And people get way too much credit for being good at poking holes in an idea. But anyone can do that. That's not like a, that doesn't give you, that doesn't, doesn't mean I'm smart just because I can, I can tear something down. Whenever I see someone tear down the view of God because of suffering in the world, those are easy holes to poke in anything. But I always ask, what is your worldview? Give me a better framework. And I, what I found is that there are no better answers that are void of faith or large leaps of, of assumption. And honestly, there's only hopelessness and despair and very unsatisfactory ideas. And so for me, it's not a hard thing. My, my Christian framework and our Christian framework, the, the idea of the gospel, that God is love, that's what the gospel, the good news is all about. The good news of God's love permeates a framework that I want to rudimentarily lay out at the beginning here today. That God is love, that in love God created. In love God created everything, the world, and he created you and me, and we have life today because God gave us life in love. That in love God created, that in, light, in love God gave us freedom to choose. There's a term for that, it's called personal agency. That God gave us agency. So we have a choice, we can, we have, we're not robots, we're not puppets on a string that have no say so in what we do. We have the agency to make choices, but the problem with choices is and, that's, and by the way, we're thankful. We all want that. No one wants to be controlled. But the problem with choices is choices lead to outcomes. Choices lead to consequences. And God who says, I made you, I put you in this world I created. Here's the sandbox. Here's how you to treat yourself and others in the world in which you live. We have the choices, the choice to do otherwise. And that's the gift of love, but it comes with a mess. It comes with the consequences. And we've brought harm to ourselves and to others and to the planet upon which we live. Some of those problems we've brought are very directly traceable, very easy to connect the dots between bad choices and suffering directly. Some of it are further out. It's like a, a, a rock in a, in, a, in a pond where the ripples spread to you. You can't tell where they came from. That bring disease and, and devastation to the planet or whatever you might want to believe. Ultimately, all of this, is just a fallout from the choice that God gave us out of love. And I know that, that we would like to blame God. We want freedom of choice, but freedom from consequence. But you just can't play that game. It doesn't work that way. And God lays it out for us and says, here's the plan. I'm going to give you life. I'm going to give you freedom. And it's going to be messy, but that's what love does. But in God's love, he sent his son and it brought redemption to the world to take care of the spiritual ramifications of sin, to bring us back into eternal relationship with him, to, to be with us now, to help us partner with him in his redemption plan for the world. And he brings that redemption to us through the good news of Jesus Christ. But even there, he gives us that freedom of agency or choice. He does not force that relationship on us there either. Because love says, I'll let you walk away from me if you want to. I'm not forcing myself on anybody. I love you enough to hurt when you walk away, but let you because I love you. And God gave us life and existence and agency and redemption in the middle of the mess that freedom has caused and produced. 
And we can tell God will take away the consequences of life, but then he has to take away the, the, the freedom of choice. And if he did that, we wouldn't want that. Take away everyone else's freedom of choice, but not mine. Or start over again, and then we'll make the same mess all over. But the problem with the gift of love is it, it, it allows the mess. It allows the outcomes. And God redeemed that for eternity, but in this sandbox upon which we live, there is still consequence and outcomes with God's natural, spiritual, and physical laws of the universe he made. And we live in that world, and so suffering is part of our story, and it does not negate a God of love. It's part of the framework that we explain how God is loving and omnibenevolent, though the world has suffering. And that may not be a satisfactory framework, and that was a very short, that deserves a whole sermon better articulated than I can do. That might not satisfy everyone's answer, but I just wanted to give us a basis point by which to jump into Job, because Job's going to tackle the topic of suffering in the world. Here's the problem. This book can't solve the question. I can't talk through the question satisfactorily. For thousands of years, people have wrestled down evil and suffering in the world and have not satisfied everybody with their answer. We can only do the best we can to find peace with the answer ourselves. And Job tackles one direction specifically. Job asks the question, why do bad things happen to good people? That's a big topic. We're going to tackle that for the next two Sundays. Now, I told this to the 9 o'clock service earlier, and I'll say it to you as well. This is a mouthful. Job has 42 chapters in it. We're going to cover the first two chapters today and the other 40 chapters next week, which means it's a lot. So we buckle up next week, right? But even today, there's so much there that what I'm going to ask us to do as we get into today's conversation is simply to, um, well, first I'm going to ask you to be, to, spare, to be gracious to me. I have run through this several times from front to back, and I, it's just longer than I want it to be. I'm gonna, I mentioned this last week, but didn't really need it. That, I'm going to need a few extra minutes today. I'm going to ask you to let me go a little bit longer today, just a few more minutes than usual, because we're going to cover so much framework to finish off next week's story and resolution. And I'll probably talk too fast like I always do, but especially when I'm under a lot of information. But just buckle up and, and allow me that grace, please, so we can tackle Job in two Sundays. So let's begin the story with the first part, Job chapter 1, verse 1. There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God, and he stayed away from evil. Now, um, he's a good guy. He's one of those good people we just mentioned, in other words. This is a, one of the good guys. Not only was he a good person, a, a, a devout person, but verse 2 says that he had seven sons and three daughters. These kids, ten children, they had all grown. He's married. We'll meet his wife a little later. Uh, he has uh, children, ten children, all fully grown into adulthood. And he's a family man. He's a good man. And he's a very wealthy man. We find that in verse number three. He owns 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. So the idea of Job is that he is so well off that, and this is so important for the rest of the story, Job is extremely 
blessed. His life is uber privileged compared to anyone around him. I mean, everyone says, oh, I'm blessed. I'm hashtag blessed, you know. But Job was really blessed. He's a good man, large family, lived a great life. The kids grew up in a day and age when mortality was so common. And he's lived long. He's gotten married. He's had a bunch of kids who've grown to be adults. And now he is wealthy beyond anyone else, richest man in around. He has extreme amounts of blessing compared to anyone else in the world. He's lived a pretty good life. It says in verse 4 that Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their homes and that they would also invite their three sisters to celebrate with them. The kids are grown. They have their own houses. Brothers take turns hosting the party. Sisters come join all the brothers. Notice who was not invited to the party, Mr. and Mrs. Job, because who wants your lame old parents there for that, right? So apparently they're at home watching network TV and everyone else is having a party. But anyhow, they're having a feast in their home. It says, when these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children. What does that mean? Well, he would get up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering for each of them. Why? For Job said to himself, perhaps my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. So in ancient culture, many religions back in those times would believe in in animal sacrifices to appease their version of deity, of the things that um, maybe has made them mad or to, uh, to win their favor. And Judaism was no exception. Obviously, when Jesus comes along, those practices stop. As Christians, we don't do that. But, but those are, in ancient times, very common, including in Judaism. And Job may not have even been a Jewish person, according to the story. That's a whole conversation. But either way, he is recognizing God and saying, I'll make sacrifices in case my kids are doing bad stuff at their parties. These long parties, like who knows what they're ingesting or what they're doing or what they're saying or how they're behaving. Now you know why Job wasn't invited to the parties, by the way. Okay, now it's clear why he wasn't invited. He'd be like, oh no, what are you doing? They're like, oh man, who invited him? So, you know, he just stays at home and worries and offers his sacrifices. But here's the thing about Job. Job is a good man, and I want you to see that about him in the story. Now we're going to shift gears to a very peculiar scene from the scene of Job's life to the scene of a heavenly uh, platform that is unlike any other layout of a view of heaven anywhere else in Scripture. It's one of the things about this book that people talk about. It's just a, a, a setting that takes place in heaven according to Job that sets the stage for what's going to go on on earth. It's a very unusual scene. Let's read it together in verse 6. One day, the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. So, you know, God's portrayed in this story as being someone who is in a, like a throne room, like ancient kings would be. People can come into the courtroom if he raises the scepter, and somewhere in there, Satan comes in to have an audience with him, although he's been kicked out of heaven before, according to Scripture elsewhere, but he's got access to come back. He's called the accuser. It means he accuses people. We're going to see that in a minute. Just remember that name, accuser Satan. He comes with the others, apparently into God's presence. Job says in verse 7, the book of Job says, Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. We see that elsewhere in Scripture, that Jesus, when he was on earth, was tempted by the devil for 40 days and nights. We see that... Um, 
uh, in Peter's writings where Peter said that Satan is like a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. The idea of this is that Satan's out there trying to get people to make decisions with their freedom of agency, of choice, that will harm themselves and harm others and harm the world in which they live. And as he tempts them to do that and, and, and cause harm, when they succumb, he celebrates and he rubs their face and, and accuses them, not just to themselves, but to God. Like, hey, God, how do you like them? Apples. You have those people in your life? I know I have. You have those, that kind of person in the past some time ago, you know, likes to like hurt you on purpose. Like, let me say something that will hurt you. Does that hurt? I hope that hurts you, you know? Like, wow, how nice of you. And Satan's coming to God and saying, uh, how do you like that? Your creation's a mess. Look what they did. Does that break your heart? I hope that hurts you. You're a failure. Your, your creation's a failure. And he's accusing, and he's not even lying. He is a liar, scriptures tell us, but he's just telling the truth. You know, it's funny, a lot of us are that way when we gossip. We're like, I'm just, I'm not, I'm gossiping, but I'm just telling the truth. I'm not lying about anybody. I'm just telling the truth. Well, so, is the, so does Satan. Congratulations. Um, you know, as if that's a good reason. And so he's, t- he's accusing others to the Lord. And then the Lord, verse 8 Asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and he stays away from evil. You bring up the messy people, I raise you with Job. And so, of course, Satan, the accuser, does what all accusers do. First of all, you know, you try to tear down the ops, you know. <laughs> you got to bash your rivals or people you don't like, you know, be they, be they celebrities, politicians, or friends. But now when God says, what about Job? Job's not going to say, oh, yeah, he is a good one. you got to do the same thing. You can't give the ops any credit, you know. So you got to find a way, or you got to take that person you don't like in culture, society, politics, celebrities, whatever, and find a way to turn what's good about them into something negative because you can't give them any credit. So Job's like, oh, he's good, Satan says. Well, let me tell you how that looks. Satan replies to the Lord in verse 9, yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. I mean, you've always put a wall of protection all around him and his home and his property. You've made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. And Satan has a point. Job has lived in a protective bubble or with a wall of protection around him. He's lived a charmed life. Like all the things that happened to people in ancient times and in the world where mortality rate was so low and, and so, so death rate so high, I'm sorry, amongst infants and adolescents and children and adults and families and, and, and thieves come and steal and heartache happens and Job has been blessed there's a wall around him where he has lived this life that made him richer than everybody else. And Satan's like, he's got a prosperity religion. You bless him, he's happy with you. That's all this is about. In fact, Satan then says, but reach out and take away everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. You poke a hole in his bubble, you let him experience the real world that he's insulated from. Let's see how strong his faith is then. All right. You may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. And Satan leaves, and he says, I'm keeping the wall around his body, but go ahead and let the rest of the real world affect his real life. So Satan gets out of God's presence and he gets right to work. Job has lived such a charmed life, extremely blessed for so long, that he'll waste no time in tearing it to the ground quickly. And what happens next is a tragic story. We go back to the earthly scene. Let's pick it up in verse 13. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's home, house, 
a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabians raided us, they stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands, and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. To which Job's thinking, what in the world? Now, Job was well diversified. He had, you know, he had the donkeys, he had the oxen, but he also had sheep and he had camels. So he was a diversified portfolio. But this section of his wealth has been taken, the people have been killed, and he has suffered tremendous loss personally. But he's like, okay, that hurts, but we're going we're gonna to be okay. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. And I am the only one who escaped to tell you. What in the world? Fire from heaven? Like a meteor comes down and catches an atmosphere on fire. And I mean, what happened? On the same day as someone stole my, What in the world? What a, what a bad run of luck. What a coincidence. But at least I got the camels still. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and have killed your servants, and I am the only one who has escaped, to tell you. And Job's like, I just lost all of my wealth. It's gone. It's all obliterated. All I have left is myself, my health, and my family. And while he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. Suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed and your, all your children are dead. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Job's lost everything. And as fast, as, as, as extremely blessed as Job's life has been above anyone else in his time, his life has been extremely devastated through tragedy beyond anyone else at one time too. He's been a man of extremes, extreme blessing and extreme heartache. It's just a crazy story. But it's teaching us something and we're gonna see it. What does Job do in this moment? What does Job do in the, in the light of all this devastation? Does he, as Satan said, curse God and abandon his faith? Verse 20 says that Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. You ever been so grief-stricken that you just can't take it, so you just, you just, tear something. He just tears off his clothes. He's so upset. Then he shaved his head. He, he was so upset that he cut his hair off and just to show physically the inward pain he was feeling. Shaved his head and he fell to the ground to worship. Wait, to worship? Look verse 21. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. That's incredible. That's, that's hard to wrap my mind around. Job said, I didn't walk into this deal with all my own stuff and said, God, don't mess it up. You know, God didn't come in as a self-made man. Like people say that, I'm a self-made person. That's arrogant and narrow-minded and wrong. But anyhow, um, I'm, I, I did all this, God, but don't mess it up for me. No, just, that's not me. I was born with nothing. I came naked into this world. And despite the odds of culture around me, I survived infancy and childhood and adolescence. And I entered adulthood with a physical and mental capacity to find love and get married. And many people don't. And I found a love that, that was able to have children, which many people can't. 
And we had 10 of them, and they all survived the mortality rates of the world around us into adulthood, which many people never experienced. And we raised them their whole lives, and now they live on their own. And I've lived an incredibly charmed life. I am rich, whether I inherited it or built it or a little bit of both. I've had the capacity beyond me to help me work and be industrious and be smart. And God has given me the capacity to be uber, uber rich my whole life. I didn't start with any of it. I had nothing. And when I leave, I'll have nothing. I'll have a box to put me in, and nothing goes with me. But the Lord has given me all that I've enjoyed in my life, and now the Lord has seen fit to take it away, and I don't know why. But praise the name of the Lord. That God's name and praise is not as fickle as how my day-to-day life is going. He says, in all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. That word sin is tossed around in church world very weightily a lot. It just means Job did not do wrong in what he said in his suffering. And let's be honest, most of us, when we're suffering, we say some wrong things. And then we usually say, God, I'm sorry about that later. I was upset, you know. Um, Job was exemplary. He, He did the right thing in his suffering. He said the right thing, which is hard to do. He, he chose to not misrepresent God or speak wrong about God as he grieved unbelievable loss. And in Job's story, what he was ultimately saying and showing us is his view that, that we're sharing today, his view that suffering, that suffering is a part of living. Are you with me? That suffering is a part of living. We saw this, by the way, we saw this last Sunday, didn't we? We talked about Ecclesiastes last week. What did we see? That Ecclesiastes is the story how that to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. That, that life is a time to be born, a time to die, a time to, to plant, a time to harvest, a time to work really hard, a time to sit back and enjoy what's harvested, a time to uh, gain and a time to lose, a time to win, a time to celebrate, a time where we suffer, a time where we enjoy and embrace, and a time where we see things walk away from us. That when you live long enough, and if, you, if we have been gifted with life and have lived long enough to experience many years. We all experience all the different seasons of life, including suffering in a broken, sinful world. It's just part of what happens. Everything in life is undeserved. Every good thing as well. Because we did nothing to earn our existence in the first place. We've entered a world by God's love that we've been given the freedom to operate with our own agency and take the mess that that has brought and the good that that has brought and live with all parts of life, including suffering. And Job's was extreme, both ways. But Job was taking on the question that we asked earlier, why do bad things happen to good people? That's a question people often wrestle, but I want to make a suggestion today before we move on that that question is a little bit, it's built on a bad foundation, if I can say that. It's built on a bad foundation. Because the, the assumption, the, the premise of that question is that we're all good people. Like, like, I'm good, and therefore I only deserve good. And therefore, if I don't get good, then it's, it's not good. And if, if, if God doesn't bring good, if God allows not good to come to me, then he's not good because I'm good. That God's job is a genie in the bottle to make sure that someone as awesome as I am that he was lucky to have created has everything I want because I'm good. And therefore, why would life not be good? Now, we wouldn't say it that way. I'm I'm extrapolating an emotion to its extreme to show us that the premise is faulty. That that, that God exists to take on my wishes. And and really, in in some ways, our theology becomes twisted because we want God to give us liberty to do what we want, whether he likes it or not. 
but we don't want him to do, have the liberty to do what we, to us what we don't want, whether we like it or not. It's almost like that, that manipulative person in your life. You'll have a narcissistic person you know. Who, they never know they're narcissistic. They think other people are. You know, because all of us probably have narcissistic tendencies in us, let's be honest, somewhere. But we don't think of it that way. But, but think about a manipulative person. Maybe it's a father or a mother or a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister or an employer, employee, co-worker, friend. The kind of person who always says to you, if you really cared about me, you'd do what I want. If you really love me, you'd let me have my way. If you love me, you let me do whatever I want to do, but also you would do whatever I want you to do. You know, those people, and you're like, how do you live with someone like that, you know? But and people like that, they get their way a lot in life because people just work around them. But in the end, you end up alone and bitter and old, right? Someday. But in a way, we can create, that creeps into our theology. We're like, God, I'm supposed to believe in you and that you're a God of love. If, you, if you're a God of love, then you will let me do, you will, you'll let me reject your will for my life and do what I want to do, and you'll love me no matter what I do because you're love. But also, you'll do what I want you to do if you're a God of love. So I don't have to do what you want me to do, and you're going to be good with that because you're loving. But you have to do what I want you to do or else you're not loving. Why would bad things happen to good people? It's a very twisted around framework that we assume ourselves as almost like we're the God. And God is loving, and he is serving us, and he is sacrificial. But that's no relationship to say, this, if, if that's true, then it must go my way, both ways. I do what I want, you accept that. You do what I want, you accept that. And so the question, why do bad things happen to good people, is, is flawed on some level because Job himself, Job flips the question on its head. Job asks the question, why do good things happen to any of us? Like, why does any of us have the blessings of life? Why have we ever experienced anything in life that's good when we could have not existed or not lived very long or had anything along the way? All of the good things that have happened, are those our rights that God, we have the right to demand from God? Dance, monkey, dance, monkey, dance, monkey, dance. You know, give me what I want. Be good, but don't be bad. Or do we look at God and say, I'll take the good, thank you. I'll take the bad. I'll accept that life is what life is, and you are good. Here's the wild part of the story. That Job found grace in his suffering when he gave God grace in his suffering. Think about that. When Job said, I don't know what God's doing, but I'm going to just believe that God has a bigger perspective than me, and there's more, there's more going on, and I don't know, but he's also been good to me, and I don't like this, but, but I'm going to acknowledge all of that, and I'm not going to have the answer, but I'm going to find some grace, God's direction. And in doing so, Job found some grace to stand in his own suffering. That's an interesting perspective. I'd love to tell you that from right here, the story gets better, and Job, it all turns around, and Job lives happily ever after. Unfortunately, it gets worse. Let's move to chapter 2 and cover the rest of the story for today. One day, verse 1, one day the members of the heavenly court came again to present themselves before the Lord. And the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from, the Lord asked Satan. Satan asked, answered the Lord, I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything going on. It's the same story we read earlier. Okay. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God, stays away from evil. And, bonus, he has maintained his integrity, even though you urged me to harm him without cause. And, of course, Satan now says, well, yeah, he's awesome. I was wrong. You were right. No, you can't. You can't give ops the credit. So Satan says to the Lord, skin for skin. A man will give up everything he has to save his life. 
but reach out and take away his health and he will surely curse you to your face. Take that bubble away too. Take that wall of protection down as well. All right, do with him as you please, the Lord said to Satan, but spare his life. This is the part of the story where I want to acknowledge a tension that you may be feeling because I feel it. Like what in the world? I'm supposed to think this is not an acceptable story. Whatever the story's being painted going on in the spiritual realm, I'm like, really? This guy? I don't like that. That doesn't land well. Maybe you just like go along and like, oh, that's fine. He's God. I just cringe at that. Maybe you do too. But I think that regardless of how we interpret the, the, the story that's being set up, the takeaway that we can all land on as we wrestle that part down in our modern, very blessed Western minds and human reasoning that is given by God, as we wrestle that down, I want you to just consider that maybe the bigger point here in this whole narrative is simply that there's more to the story. That what Job saw in his physical ailments and his utter sudden tragedies and his failing health was just what he saw affecting him. But over unbeknownst to him, there's a whole conversation going on in the spiritual realm that he didn't see. And I don't, I'm asking any of us to like the story in the spiritual realm. I'm simply saying there was more to the story. And that's a perspective that, that we must consider. And Job never sees this side of the story. Job does not know what's going on in the spiritual realm, does he? Here's the question. Would it have helped him to know what's going on? In the story. You know, would that, have, would that have really made him feel better? Like, we're always like, oh, if I, I could take my problems and my suffering if I only knew why. I'd be okay if I just knew why. Would you? Would that have helped Job? Like, here's God. Hey, Job. <laughs> hey, how you doing? Well, never mind. I know how you're doing. Terrible. Hey, but, you know, there's, there's a story behind that. Ha, ha, ha. So, um, Satan's coming up here talking smack. And I'm like, oh, yeah, well, Job's awesome. And he's like, oh, Job's you know, blessed. And so I'm like, oh, yeah, we'll pulverize him and we'll show you that he's a good man. And so, you know, that's why this happened to you, and you know, you made me look good. That's what this has always been about. That's what it's always been about. And Job's gonna be like, oh, that's awesome. In that case, pulverize me again. Like, seriously, it's like bring my family back and crush them again. I, is that really a satisfactory answer? Is that gonna, is that gonna make you feel fulfilled? Like, the, is the why really what we hope the why will bring us when we struggle with what happens? Or will it leave us unsatisfied? I, I believe in the long run, of Job's existence, when we'll see next week how the story ends and his life does end up in a much better place than despite the heartaches he experiences that are enormous. His life ends up in a good spot, as we'll see. But also for the thousands and thousands of years after him, his story has done so much good to help people through their own stories of suffering. It's how people to this very day navigate our own trials. That Job in eternity could look back and say, that was very hard, but God has done good with it, and I understand the purpose. But in the moment, would that kind of understanding of the rest of the story made him feel better? I don't think so. Maybe, but I don't think so. And would it help me to know why everything's happening the way it's happening in my life? Maybe someday, maybe I believe today that all things will work together for good to those who love God. Maybe in the grand scheme of it, I'll look back and it'll make sense one day. But in the middle of my suffering, demanding to know why might not satisfy me because I might not... I might find fault with the answer. It's kind of like when someone has a different view of you about things in the world and they present their case to you. You're like, well, why do you believe that anyhow? Then they tell you and then you poke holes in it. What you're doing basically is you're saying, I didn't really want to understand. I wanted to debate. And I can say, God, I want to know why this is happening, but it might not satisfy me. It might be, just give me a reason to debate why it's a stupid reason and leave me just as dissatisfied as I was before I knew why. 
And Job just understands here, we understand that there's just more going on than anyone can see. And I just want to say to you that possibly in your life and my life, there's just more to your suffering. And hope that can in some weird way encourage you. There's more to the story. And when other people suffer, there's more to the story. So let that cause us to be slow to, to have an opinion. Job 2, verse 7, let's continue. Job, so Satan left the Lord's presence and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, God bless his wife, by the way. His wife said to him, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. I've been around the church world long enough to hear people put her down for saying this, and Job, in the next verse, does say she was talking foolishly, but he was not putting her down, I don't think. Let's give her a break here. Like, she has, you know what's hard, maybe harder than suffering? Watching someone you love suffer. Right? Let's be real. And she's lost tremendously herself, and now she's watching someone she loves suffer, and she's just done. She's like, just, maybe you'll curse God, he'll let you die, and you'll be out of your misery. I can't take the pain I'm watching you go through. God bless this girl. But Job answers her in verse 10. He says, you talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? Hear that? Job's perspective was, should I say, yep, God, back up the truck with the good stuff. That's right. Now, 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 now. That's right. More and more of that. Oh, no, no, none of that. I, I, I reject. I refuse that. He says, no, God has allowed me to experience a lot in life, good and bad. And in all this, Job said nothing wrong. And I know, I understand how hard it is. And I told you, there's no way to satisfy the macro view of God and suffering in this world. There's not in a talk or a book or anything else. But I just, as we consider Job, we may argue when we see suffering that God is bad if he doesn't stop it. But strangely, Job's point is that God is good even if he starts it. Isn't that weird? And it begs the question, do we believe God is good, or do we believe in God because he's good? In other words, if I believe that God is, is who he is, he's good, or if, if, it's, if it's going good for me, if he's good to me, then he's good, and I believe in him if, he's, if, if, if it's going my way. If that's the case, then it can change on any given day of my life. Oh, he's good today, he's not, he's, he's real today, he's not. And it could go from day to day. It can go from season to season. Oh, he is, he's not. You can go from life to life, from person's life experience to life experience. But if God, if it's that fickle, if the standard's that fickle, then let's be real. Then God isn't real, and he isn't good. If it's as fickle as how things are going for me, then it's just take, then he's not good or he's not there, one or the other. But if God is there and if he cares, if he is good, then he's good, period. Even though in the life that he gave us in love and the freedom of agency he gave us in love and the redemption he brought into the consequences of our freedom in love and the offer he gives us still of freedom to choose in love is still his goodness, or he's not good because he can't be good and bad depending on how my day or life is going at any season. In other words, I just want you to think about this. It's not on the screen, but think about this. Part of accepting that there is a God means accepting that there is someone who is larger and wiser than we are. If we accept there's a God. And you don't, I don't have to accept that there's a God. I said, I said it last hour, I'll say it again. I can reject that there is a God. Doesn't mean he's not there if he is there. I can say that there is no God. Doesn't mean he isn't there if I say that. Or I can say that there is a God. Doesn't mean he's there because I said so. He is or he isn't. Or the right, my opinion doesn't change what he is or is not. 
But if I'm going to come on a landing place in my beliefs that there is a God, if, if I'm going to accept that I don't understand him, I may have some major ramifications of what that might look like in my own view, but if I accept that there is a God, then part of that package means accepting that there's someone. If there is a God, that means there's someone who's larger than we are, who's wiser than we are, who has a bigger perspective, who has a, a better vantage point. And it just comes with a territory of something beyond my ability to put in my box. And that's what Job was saying in his suffering. I don't get it. I don't see it all. But God gave it, God took away, and I'm here experiencing the life many people experience. And that's how it goes. Now, I'm going to wrap up the last few verses of the chapter before we, 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 this sets up next week's story. I'm going to read it for you to set up next week. Chapter 2, verse 11. When three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and they traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. Their names were Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. When they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes and threw dust in the air over their heads to show their grief. Job's friends are going to get a lot of grief from us next, next week. They get a lot of grief in the rest of the story. So for today, let's give them some credit. They showed up. They went all the way to where Job was at to visit him in his suffering and his heartache. They were so torn up to see him in the condition he was in that they ripped their clothes as if it was their own suffering. It says in verse number 13 that they, then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights. No one said a word to Job for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. There's nothing to say. We're just going to show up and be here. That's pretty incredible. We give them some tr grief later but they, they did what, what, what all a person could do for someone's suffering. And as we pivot into that future lesson, as we get ready to wrap this up, I want it to let, let us come back to a couple of basic thoughts as we tidy this thing up today. That Job is a story where we can understand that we'd be tempted to be skeptical of God. But that's not what Job did. Interestingly, Job didn't, we can look at Job's story and say, I've got a beef with God about that. But, but interesting, the one who suffered himself didn't take that view. We can look at it and be skeptical of God, but, the, but Job himself, who experienced the harshness, did not take that view. And it brings me to a big thought I've had through the years, and that is that when we look at people who suffer in the world, when we are tempted to, be careful, when we're tempted to take someone else's suffering and use it as a case against God, be careful that we don't co-opt someone else's suffering to take away from them the faith that strengthens them through their suffering. It's not fair to come to somebody who's suffering and say, let me take your suffering and also use it to clobber down the God that gives you strength in your suffering or to, 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 to rip away the faith that gives you purpose and guidance in your suffering. It's not fair to call up someone's suffering to make a case. When oftentimes the people who are suffering like Job, it was their faith that gave them, the God was very important and real to them. It becomes an issue to us, a debate to us, a philosophy, but to someone who's suffering, it's real. And that goes both ways. You go to someone who's suffering and say, you need to trust God. You know, I can preach a sermon like this on Sunday to an audience and teach something that we can think about in our mindset that our hearts can hopefully embrace when we need it. But this is not how you or I ever talk to someone who's actually suffering. Hey, let me tell you how you should see your suffering. Okay, thanks. You know, you should trust God or you shouldn't believe in God. What's wrong with you? It's not, that's not our job. When people suffer, we need to be like Job's friends were when they first showed up. 
You want, you want, you say, what do I do when someone's suffering? I want, to, I, want them to see how, I want them to see it how it is. How can we see anything for what it is in the middle of suffering? Here's the thought. Here's the best approach when someone you know is suffering. Be present. Say less. Here, here's a great, some great advice for all of us. Show up and shut up, right? Like, your presence is more important than your opinion. Your support is more important than your sermon. Because people are going to have to figure out their own beliefs and their own opinions through their own heartache. They've got to figure that out with them. And God, all they need from you and me is to act godly enough to just to be there and care. Like, we believe that God is, that he is there and that he cares. That's it. And so as we wrap this up today, I want to leave us with the last thought that Job was given earlier, that Job gave, showed us earlier, that applies to you and me, maybe today and somewhere in our own journey. And that is this. I find grace in my suffering when I give God grace in my suffering. When I sit back and I acknowledge, God, I don't know why this has happened. I don't get it. I wouldn't have chosen that, but I also acknowledge that I've received a lot of good in my life that I also did not earn. I didn't come into this world with that right. You have blessed me immeasurably over and over again, and now I'm suffering. I'm in that season of life of maybe immense suffering. But I don't get it. But I know that suffering is a part of living. I know that, that God is good even if I don't experience good. And though I don't understand the rest of the story, I believe there's more to the story and that perhaps one day I will. And I don't know how that will work out. I don't have the answers or the little tidy bow around the package for you. But I'm just going to put some grace towards God in my suffering. And when I do that, when you do that, it gives us grace. It gives us something that keeps us from being just bitter and we can turn to be very bitter and alone and old one day if we're not careful at how we treat any relationship and how we treat anything when life doesn't go the way we hope it will go. So give grace to others. Give grace to God and find grace for yourself in the life experience. And that's all I have to say for today. We'll finish the story next week. And it gets juicy from here. You don't want to miss that.